Hello, Chapel Hill, friends and family. Welcome to our live service today. If you're joining us new and you'd love to get connected to our church community, please contact us on our website. We'll love to get connected with you. We are currently in a new series on the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And last Sunday, we looked at Acts chapter 2, where we saw God pour out the Holy Spirit onto the church. And today, we continue the story of Acts, where we see the church move forward courageously as witnesses of Jesus with the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Has there been a time when someone has spurred you on to do something courageous? Has there been someone who really egged you on to bravely overcome a fear? That might be a fun question to ask each other in community groups this week. I remember there was a time when I was in high school when I was really into aggressive inline skating. And that's the urban street hardcore style of rollerblading. And there was a time in the early hours of the morning after partying at an under-18s dance party that a friend and I thought it would be fun to skate down the steepest street in Sydney and challenge each other on who could survive that street. Because it just so happened that we had our skates in the boot of our cars. So the steepest street in Sydney is a Tunga Street in Wollara. It has a 25-degree gradient. And I can truly say that it is much more scarier in real life, especially wearing rollerblades. I mean, park cars have been known to take off on their own. Wheelie beans must be placed with careful precision. And if your home workout isn't working out for you and you're keen to do a heel run, be my guest and try out a Tunga Street. And so we get to the top of Atunga Street, and we discovered we only had knee pads and not wrist guards. And so we had this genius idea of holding onto each other's knee pads as pseudo wrist guards. So through the help of my friend's influence, his encouragement, his empowerment, I launched down the hill. And I was in pretty good form, uh, at the top and to the middle, but on halfway down the hill, I was getting speed wobbles, death wobbles. My knees were wobbling in different directions, and so I had to bail. I had to jump off onto the grass patch on the uh, footpath, and I rolled to a stop, narrowly missing, hitting my head on a tree. And so the moral of this coming-of-age story is that many times we need the help of others to do courageous things. But who will influence you to have the courage to do good things or perhaps silly or even bad things? See, the Holy Spirit is more than just a friend. The Holy Spirit is God who influences, encourages, and empowers you to be bold and courageous to do the good things of God. And from Acts chapter 3, we see the early church being filled with the Holy Spirit, becoming courageous as Jesus' witnesses to proclaim the good news of salvation. And it all starts in Jerusalem. And what we'll be looking at today is from Acts chapter 3 all the way to Acts chapter 4 up to verse 31. 
So I encourage you to, to have your Bibles open or your Bible app open and as we follow along the story of Acts chapter 3 and 4. And we will also show some key verses on the screen along the way. The structure of this section of Acts is very similar to Acts chapter 2, which we looked at last week. It starts with a divine miracle, and then Peter gives a gospel explanation. Then we see the religious leader's response, and finally we see the church's response. So first, the divine miracle. Peter and John, they are going up to the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And what we'll see is that the setting of the Jewish temple is very significant. Peter and John, they get to the temple at three in the afternoon. And this is usually a time of prayer at the temple. And at the temple, Peter and John come across a lame beggar. The beggar was at the temple gates every day to beg from those who are entering into the temple. When the beggar saw Peter and John, they asked for money. Peter said, look at us. And the man looked towards Peter and John, expecting to get some money from them. But Peter doesn't give the beggar what he was expecting. We read from verse 6. Then Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. This is an incredible moment, isn't it? Last Sunday, we saw the beautiful picture of the early church in Acts chapter 2, and we're reminded that our Christian calling is to be generous with our resources, to offer practical help to meet the needs of others. But we're reminded as we read this text today that even when we feel like our resources are limited, we have in God a wealth of love and power to give. Let us not forget that our greatest wealth and treasure is who? It's Jesus. His life, His hope, His healing, His salvation is what our city desperately needs. And in the name of Jesus, the man is offered grace. In the name of Jesus, the man is offered healing. In the name of Jesus, this man is offered a new way of living. We read on from verse 8, He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking, jumping, praising God. I mean, isn't that an incredible scene? He wasn't just walking, he was jumping, he was praising God. And we have to see that what is most amazing about this miracle is actually not that he's walking or jumping. What is most amazing is that he's walking and jumping inside the temple. Because in those times, if you were lame or a leper, or if you were born with an impairment, it was believed that you were cursed by God. You'll be treated as outcasts, excluded from society. You're considered as the ones that are most furthest away from God. Do you remember the time that perhaps you used to go clubbing? I don't know why, but I'm going down memory lane with my illustrations this week. But I remember the time that I would go to a dance club called Home down at Darling Harbour. Anyone else, have you hit up a home club back in the day? And we, the thing is, we knew the head bouncer at the home club. 
So every time we would turn up to home, we were not only able to get our names down on the list, well, we were able to jump ahead of the massive queue and walk straight into the club. Everyone uh, would feel like we would be so happy. All of our friends and I would feel so privileged. And sometimes, because we knew the head bouncer, we'll get to go into the VIP section upstairs and get up close and personal with the DJs. And we felt like we were on top of the world. We would jump, we would dance, we would bounce off the walls of this VIP section. Absolutely enjoy and delight in the freedom and access that we had in the club. Well, that kind of freedom and joy is really minuscule compared to the freedom and joy this man had when he entered into the temple. This is what he was so joyful about. It's not that he could walk as miraculous as that was. He was most joyful about entering into the temple, entering into the very presence of God. Because notice in the text, it's only when he enters into the temple courts that he jumps and praises God. And so the miracles we read in the Bible acts as signs. Signs that point to the reality of the kingdom of God. Signs that direct people to the way of the kingdom of God. This miracle of healing of the lame man points to the greater miracle that any outcast, any sinner can freely come into the presence of God through Jesus' salvation. And so what we learn about miracles in the Bibles is that they are not an end in itself. The miracles are a means for people to get closer to God, for people to be directed into the kingdom of God. Miracles are in service to the gospel, which is the way into the kingdom of God. And so, yes, we should pray boldly for healing for our friends and family, but we should also pray for the healing to lead them to know God to lead them to know the good news of Jesus, who has not only had the power to heal, but also has the power to save. We see, this miracle was a fulfillment of a prophecy about God's salvation in Isaiah. In Isaiah 35, we read, Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. I mean, what an amazing response the man had when he entered the temple. I mean, doesn't that just stir your own heart to be joyful and be thankful like Him? Because we are in Christ. We are in the presence of God. I mean, look at this man. Doesn't that make you feel more in awe that we now have the access and freedom to enter into the throne room of God by the Holy Spirit? I mean, if I'm bouncing off the walls of the VIP room of the home club, how much more should I be bouncing down the streets for being able to enter into the very presence of God? What the people in our city need is Jesus, to experience the miracle that Jesus can perform to bring people into the presence of God by the forgiveness of sins. And that is exactly what Peter goes on to explain, to proclaim, and to pre preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter says to the crowd from verse 12, Fellow Israelites, 
Why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. Notice that Peter is pointing and directing people to see Jesus in the miracle. He says, don't stare at us. There's nothing special about us. This is all about Jesus. And so they direct the crowd's attention away from even the lame man, away from themselves, and he directs them to lift their eyes up to see Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, the same God to Abraham and the forefathers. But as Peter points them to Jesus, he also convicts the crowd for how they have rejected him. Peter says this Jesus who has healed this man is the same Jesus who you handed over to be killed in verse 13. This same Jesus whom you disowned as the holy and righteous one in verse 14. And he just goes straight down the line in verse 15. Peter says, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Peter wants the crowd to see that it is Jesus' power at play. Jesus is the one who is raised from the dead. Jesus is the one who heals. Jesus is the one who restores. Jesus is the one who gives life. Jesus is the one that brings people to God. Do you believe this? Chapel Hill, do you believe this? Because I know in my own journey that it's easy to forget that it is Jesus' power at play. How tempting it is to forget that every good gift is from Jesus. Whether it's a dramatic, miraculous answer to prayer, or whether it's just in the simple moments of every day, how easy is it for us to overlook that every good gift comes from God? And Peter also wants the crowd to, and us to see how easy we can reject Jesus who gives us all good things. How we have disowned him, who is the giver and author of life. How we have killed him in our sin. Yet despite our sin and our rejection of Jesus, God offers us grace. Peter goes on to say to his fellow Israelites from verse 17, I know that you acted in ignorance as you did, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Then he says in verse 19, Repent then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, and times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. This moment in Jesus' speech is very significant. It's made very clear to them that the people of Israel have done the most terrible, most horrendous thing imaginable. They actually killed the Messiah that they had been so long hoped for. 
And Peter acknowledges that, yeah, they were ignorant, but they're still responsible. The blood is still on their hands. And there's nothing that they can do about this. There's nothing that they could fix this situation. There's nothing that they can do to ever take back what has been done to Jesus. Yet here, Peter is declaring good news to them. The good news that Jesus can wipe away the blood on their hands. So if God is willing to extend grace to these men, how much more would He extend grace to us? If He would extend grace to those who are directly responsible for the death of His Son, then whatever sin or mess is in your life, it's not too big for God to cover you in grace. His grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient for your addiction. His grace is sufficient for your foolishness or destruction. His grace is sufficient for your apathy or indifference. His His grace is sufficient for your rejection of God, your turning away from Jesus. And what is amazing is that God not only promises our sins would be wiped away, but we would also be met with refreshment from the presence of God. It's not only that Jesus takes away our sin, but he also invites us to know the refreshment that comes from God. He's saying, I'll clear your record, I'll wipe away your sin, and I will now give you my love. I will awaken and refresh your soul. And that is what we see when the healed man jumps and praises God. He is refreshed from his soul. And the third promise is that God will restore all that is wrong in the world when Jesus returns. The third promise is about filling us with hope for a future restoration. Total forgiveness, spiritual refreshment, and the hope of the total restoration of the world. That is what Jesus offers us in grace when we repent and turn to God. What good news it is to the men of Israel and what good news it is to us. So did the religious leaders and the priests in the temple respond to the good news of Jesus Christ? Did they receive forgiveness? Did they repent to receive spiritual refreshment and hope Did they jump for joy, praising God? Sadly, no. We read in chapter 4, verse 2, they were greatly disturbed because apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. This is the first time that we see the believers of Jesus imprisoned for preaching the gospel. But it wasn't a real surprise to them, for Jesus taught them and prepared them that those who would follow him would also suffer rejection, would also suffer persecution. But in the face of persecution, the church will not be stopped. The power of the gospel cannot be hindered. Even though Peter and John were thrown into jail, we read another 5,000 people were added to the church. Very often, the suffering in the church is often the very means that Christ uses to bring people into his kingdom. God uses persecution to embolden 
believers and draw many unbelievers to himself. Now, you would think that Peter is in prison and put on trial. You would think that that would make him a bit more fearful to open his mouth again. He doesn't. The influence of the Holy Spirit continues to embolden him to continue to preach the gospel. We see this from verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Peter gets filled with the Holy Spirit. He comes under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And again, he speaks with bold and graphic language. He says, you crucified Jesus, but God raised him up from the dead. The Holy Spirit inspires him to even quote Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this is a prophecy about the rejection of the Messiah. So once again, by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, Peter is showing to the religious leaders that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. And Peter boldly proclaims that salvation is in no one else, for only Jesus' name can save. Man, the religious leaders, they're absolutely shocked by the words that are coming out of Peter's mouth. We even read in verse 13 that religious leaders considered Peter and John to be uneducated, ordinary men. Peter and John, they were fishermen, not PhD scholars. And really, most people in the first century Israel were illiterate. So how could these men preach with such intelligence and such authority? Well, it's by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And really, they couldn't help themselves to not speak the gospel because under the influence of the Holy Spirit, we read in verse 18, which is a great scene between Peter and John and the religious leaders, we read, Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us... We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Isn't that incredible? Like We might even giggle about Peter and John not being able to shut up about Jesus. But this was the truth. The text is showing us that the primary way for the Holy Spirit to influence our lives is to empower and embolden us to share the good news of Jesus to others. The Holy Spirit eggs us on to speak about Jesus because... It's an urgent matter of salvation. The message of salvation is a matter of necessity. Being filled with the Holy Spirit quickens us with a sense of urgency of spreading the name of Jesus, which is the power to save. And that's why we can't help speaking about Jesus all the time. And so, friends of Chapel Hill, if you're joining us today, that's why we're always on about Jesus. And I hope you understand. We're not trying to be repetitive. We're not trying to be annoying. 
We just can't help ourselves to share the good news of Jesus because we really love you. We love you so much that we want to spend all of eternity with you, which is why we are telling you about Jesus, because he offers us eternal life by faith. And we would go to great lengths to love you in this way by sharing the good news of Jesus with you. And that's why Peter and John, well, they're willing to be in prison to share the gospel to others. The religious leaders threatened them further, but eventually they let them go. They couldn't find any basis to punish them. We read from verses 23 to 21 of chapter 4 that Peter and John return to their own people. They return to the church. And here we get our second wonderful picture of the early church. We read that Peter and John reported back to the church what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And you would think that after hearing about the confrontation with these religious leaders who had the power to uh, persecute them, you would think that the church would maybe play it safe, maybe do things a bit more discreetly, maybe just pull back a bit. Nope. That was not how they responded. How they responded to the news was that they were driven to pray. And what did they pray about? They prayed about God's sovereignty and power. And what is striking is that the believers never asked God to spare them from further confrontation or suffering. Rather, they asked God to allow them to speak more boldly, with greater boldness, about the good news of Jesus. They prayed big prayers. They dreamed big dreams. They had a big vision because the growth of the church wasn't contingent on their strength, but on the power and the sovereignty of God. Look, there's nothing wrong with praying for God's protection over our lives, but this second picture of the early church should challenge us. It should inspire us to seek the proclamation of the gospel as a greater need and pursuit than perhaps our own protection. And that's in line with the Lord's Prayer, to seek first the kingdom of God, and God will provide our daily bread. We have to ask ourselves, how much of our prayer is asking Jesus' protection than asking for the proclamation of Jesus? We have to ask ourselves, how much of our Priority is about our daily needs over the need of salvation in the world. How much do we make our day-to-day challenges our priorities and we make them roadblocks for being on mission rather than trusting God to provide for our daily needs, to allow us to overcome our daily challenges as we boldly pursue God's mission? Look, I think we're too prone when things get a little bit hard, to hit pause on church life and the service and the progress of the gospel. See, the early church's reflex was to lean into prayer and press into God's sovereignty and power. I think our reflex is more likely to lean into the couch and press into our own self-protection, which is often a front for our selfishness. And the reason why we have such a reflex that this text is saying is because we actually have little faith about God's power and sovereignty. We pay lip service to it, but we don't act 
like we truly believe in God's universal sovereignty and power. Because if we did, this is what it would look like. This is what happened after they prayed for God's sovereignty and power. Verse 31, after they prayed, the place they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the Word of God boldly. The shaking of the ground reminds us of what happened when Jesus died on the cross. The earth shook, the temple curtain was torn into two, which represents the free access into God's presence. And so the shaking of the ground here after they prayed is a representation, a sign that God is present amongst them, approving their prayers. The earth rumbling is a demonstration that God is with them and they are filled with the Holy Spirit. They come completely under the influence of the Holy Spirit and they spoke the Word of God boldly. Again, we see the undeniable link between being filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking the gospel boldly. They weren't afraid of persecution, let alone the small challenges and inconveniences in their life. They didn't hit pause on the progress of the gospel and the growth of the church. They actually got bolder and dreamed bigger. And they were filled with awe as they felt the tangible presence of God. And that is what happens when you pray in belief of God's sovereignty and power. That is what happens when you come under the influence of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Chapel Hill, let's be a church like this. Isn't that the kind of Christian life that we all want to live? To be bold and not fearful. Our fears can be so limiting and can feel sometimes like a prison that's holding us back. But we can be free from our fears because God is sovereign and powerful. So let's pray that God, by His presence and power of the Holy Spirit, that He would transform us to help us to speak of Jesus to a lost and desperate world. Whatever anyone may say to us or threaten to do to us, because God is sovereign and powerful. And we need the help of another to be courageous. We need someone to nudge us, to push us, to do something brave and bold. And by the grace of God, we are filled and given the Holy Spirit who nudges us, who pushes us to speak boldly of the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that though our sin killed your son, you raised him from the dead to offer us grace, the grace of your forgiveness, the grace of spiritual refreshment, the grace of your future restoration. We thank you for the miracle of cutting our hearts to be guilty of our sin, to be guilty of our rejection of you, so that we would receive Christ and his forgiveness to bring us into an eternal relationship with you. We jump with joy. We leap with gladness for the miracle of your salvation. And we ask that we would come under the influence of the Holy Spirit, that you would press us into your sovereignty and power so we would boldly live by faith and not in fear for the good and salvation of our city. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.